Amen. Let's be seated. <clears throat> Thank you, Rachel. By the way, I know I've said it a number of times, but I'll say it again. Thank you to the men who are willing to lead in prayer and read in the, read the scriptures and has take part in some way. It's not that I don't want to serve the Lord by doing those, but it's actually it's not healthy for a church when the pastor tries to do everything. And we're supposed to be a body and grow in our work of the ministry working together. And so I appreciate those that are willing to do that in whatever capacity needed. And really, there's no unimportant task done for the Lord, is there? Is there anything we do that he doesn't notice? There's nothing. All right, Ephesians 4, are you there? Picking up in verse 23. I'll tell you candidly this morning, um, in preaching through the Scriptures, obviously we want to emphasize the whole counsel of God. We believe uh, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and All of it is important. I try to shy away from saying this passage is the most important and this is the only one that talks about and such and such. We can get ourselves into trouble with that. Uh, We need both the theological sections, we need the practical sections. But I will say, uh, getting to it, there are certain passages you get to after laying the foundation in something like a book of Ephesians that in getting to teach through it, you feel like it's, it's of such immense, practical, basic everyday importance that it's exciting to go through the text. And uh, this morning really is one of those, at least for me. I can tell you straightforward, I guarantee you, uh, what we're talking about this morning has to do with every single one of you here, directly. I can also tell you that to the degree that we implement the principles we're talking about this morning, we can be dramatically helped even walking out the door. I mean, what we're talking about this morning has everything to do with things you're going to face, maybe right here sitting here in the building, or definitely when you leave. And so I thank God for laying a foundation of tremendous theology and positional truth, but I also thank Him that He doesn't leave us without practical help. And what is our basic, and I'm not talking about the self-help type of sermon, let's give you three steps to have a perfect life, we don't mean that. But if you're a real Christian, you desire fellowship with God. You want to know how to be successful according to the Bible's terminology. Anyone here not want to conquer sin? Does anybody here not want to glorify God? Does anybody here not want to obey this book? Sometimes the difficulty lies in how to make that a reality, doesn't it? If you were old enough to be paying much attention to the news, uh, back in the early 1990s, you may recall, uh, really one of the strangest scientific experiments that's ever been conducted on American soil. It was in a town called Oracle, Arizona. In fact, the facility is still there today, although it's being used for different purposes than it was originally intended. Uh, But the name of this experiment was Biosphere 2. Anybody remember that? Back in the early 1990s. I know when I was in school, this was very, very big news uh, because part of it were the evolutionary overtones of the whole thing. But basically, the idea was through this system of of glass domes all interconnected, uh, they were going to be, they were going to create a completely sealed, airtight ecosystem that would produce enough oxygen and nutrients to sustain human life for years on end inside the sealed system. It was going to have the perfect blend of plant and animal life. It would contain multiple biomes, as they called them. You'd have the rainforest biome and the tropical uh, uh, ocean biome and then the jungle biome and such. And uh, it was going to have the right balance of microbes in the soil to naturally recycle human waste. And of course, inside this manufactured bubble, life and health and peace were going to reign. And the investors and the creators, they really dreamed big at the time. They had plans for the future of of biospheres being made to order. Biospheres being established on the moon and other planets and even floating around in space. And they admitted part of the intrigue was the creation of a new world. A miniature sort of utopia. Free from pollution. Free from gun violence. Free from partisan politics. 
And all the other negative aspects of living on planet Earth, in fact, many of these people said, our, our civilization is not dying, it's dead, and now we're trying to fix it. You know, they thought they were going to fix things. Uh, this, this experiment would be a blueprint for a blissful life all over the universe. And Carl Hodges from University of Arizona predicted, this might be the most important scientific experiment of all time. ABC's Primetime suggested this experiment might just save our planet. And so on September 26, 1991, eight Biospherians, as they were called, paraded past the media in their blue sci-fi jumpsuits, and they were sealed inside the airtight door of this three-acre complex for a two-year mission. Well, uh, Utopia didn't last long. Uh, within two weeks, one of the Biospherians chopped off the tip of her finger in a rice threshing machine. The resident doctor was forced to send her outside of paradise for surgery at the local hospital. And she rejoins the crew, and it was later found out that all the while in this sealed, perfect system, outside staff members were secretly sneaking provisions in at least twice a month. They were sneaking in vitamins and seeds and even mousetraps. It was later found out they had even secretly installed an air system to manage the ideal atmosphere, even though it was supposed to perfectly manage itself. That, of course, was kept from the media. Well, raising, raising food soon became a major problem. The weather outside was cloudy for months, which stunted crop growth. Now, if your only food in your paradise is your crop, now you have issues. Okay, Now they were facing starvation, and so... They broke into their food source that they had secretly hidden away that they weren't supposed to have, which sustained them for a couple of months. Well, then oxygen-eating bacteria exploded in the soil, which nearly made the biospherians inside suffocate until outside oxygen, liquid oxygen, was trucked in. Well, then the animals began to die off, including hummingbirds and bees, leaving the crops unpollinated. Then cockroaches exploded in population and nearly took the place over. Now, predictably, tensions between the Biospherians escalated. Now, meanwhile, what was happening outside of paradise? Well, project management disagreements led to mass resigning, mass firing, and mass finger pointing. In 1993 alone, the project was $16 million in the hole with very little to show for it. Eventually, after two harrowing and miserable years inside, the Biospherians were released back to normality. Uh, two of them loved the experience so much, and they became so concerned about the next group of biospherians that entered later on, they actually broke into the biosphere, busted up the air filtration system, and tried to rescue the next inhabitants because they were terrified those people would die inside of paradise. Well, those people were arrested for trespassing, and thus this grand experiment came to an end. Some scientists lamented, we spent $200 million and failed to replicate the processes that nature does for free. Well, how about that? Well, so much for utopia at the hands of man. Well, what was the problem? The problem is paradise can't be dreamed up in fallen minds built by wicked hands and inhabited by sinful hearts and succeed. Mankind generally thinks his real problem is his environment. Just fix that, and I'll be okay. Now, we hear this rhetoric all the time. This is the basis of modern psychology. It's the basis of modern liberal politics. It's the basis of a lot of our foreign policy. You, know, you give the terrorists enough cookies, why, they'll love us, and they'll stop firing those nasty missiles. Every time there's a shooting, what's the problem? Well, it's the guns. Take the guns away, everything will be, everything will be lovely, Right? So we hear this sort of thing constantly. But according to the God that made us, our great problem is not external, it is internal. That's why man must be born again. Now last time we were talking about the description of human nature from heaven's perspective. You remember that? I'll just read you some of the terms we used. What is man like from God's perspective? What is the lost world functioning on? What level? He said it's empty and aimless. Dark, dead, ignorant, blind, shameless, perverse, impure, and greedy. So much for flattery. 
And of course, the admonition was, do what? What should a Christian do in response to that? Walk not as other Gentiles walk. In other words, your life after salvation should be radically different than it was before. But, let's talk about the other side of this a little bit. I think, unfortunately, many Christian people unwittingly carry a sort of biosphere mentality into their Christian life. And now they're surrounded by God's people, which is a good thing. Uh, Now they're learning many practical things, what not to do and what to do. Many things have changed. But then they may subtly begin to think, because of these external environmental changes, that now they're impervious to various depths of evil that would have affected them before. When the truth is, just like the Biospherians carried their evil nature into that sealed dome, Christian people bring their evil nature right with them into their Christian life. A tendency sometimes is to get away from everything. I think all of us have had the experience, I just want to be by myself, put me on a mountain somewhere, get me away from every influence, Get me away from from whatever music, get me away from people, get me away from society, get me away from politics, lock me in a mountain somewhere. But what you find is it's still you and your sinful self on that mountain somewhere. That's why asceticism has never worked. That's a false religious notion that you just get off in a monk or whatever. A lot of groups do it. You just get away locked up in some stone castle somewhere and you'll be purified. Oh no, you won't. Because the old nature, the old nature is still there. I think to many, I don't want to speak for everybody's experience, I can't do that, but I know in my own and many people I've talked to over the years, they genuinely come to Christ. There's changes, and that's good. And many times things change very quickly. And without realizing it, they're developing a theology problem. And what they're unwittingly thinking is, My old nature is really not there. It's weakened or it's been shut out. I am now impervious to those old temptations. They don't don't affect me the way they used to. And then some of the newness wears off. Life enters mundane stretches. Those things start to creep. Knock at the door. And the person's thinking, I thought I was better than that. And then they begin to doubt their salvation. Maybe I'm not a new creature at all. You see, the real problem is, they're just not understanding what the Scriptures say about our natures. Look, God doesn't pull any punches. God does not condemn you. This is important. God does not condemn you for the perverse nature that you are born with. He tells you you have it, and He tells you how to overcome it. I think it's very fitting at the beginning or towards the beginning of a section of Scripture like this where we're talking about how we should be living as redeemed people. Romans 6-8 through does the same thing, by the way. Before we get to Romans 12, we have Romans 6-8 through dealing with a lot of the same subject matter. Before we get to how, what should we be practically doing? Uh, We see this emphasis that the Christian absolutely has a dual nature, possesses two natures, and teaches us how to overcome them biblically. Now, notice how they're described quickly. Uh, Verse 22, where we ended last time. He put off concerning the former conversation, that's your old lifestyle, and then he refers to that nature as the old man. And look how he describes it there. It's corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. Here's here's another way you could translate those words. It is rotten to the core with lying longings. In other words, not just does it desire evil, but it desires evil in such a way that it will talk you into rationalizing sin. That's why the Bible talks about the deceitfulness of sin. 
It's described vividly in Romans 7. We're not going to turn there at this point, but I would challenge you again. Get familiar with Romans 6 through 8. They are so critical to Christian growth. But uh, Paul is talking about himself, and I've always thought it was magnificent. Of all people God would use to talk about his own sinful nature as a Christian, God would pick Paul, who we think is the greatest Christian to ever exist. That's like neon light singing, hey, guess what? You can expect the same internal war. And uh, he goes to length. In fact, in the middle of that chapter, he switches tenses from past tense, talking about what he was before he was saved, to present tense, which shows he brings the same old nature into his life as a Christian. He still has the corruption he finds within. In verses 8 through 11 of that chapter, he describes his flesh actually taking the Word of God, the commandment, and using it to turn him into a worse person. That's a shocking thing. Why is it you see a prohibition? You see a speed limit sign, and instantly you want to go faster. Our nature, a prohibition line is drawn anywhere. Here's a no trespassing sign and you're hunting. What are you thinking? Well, why did that guy get to have that property, right? Why can't I hunt over there? And so Paul's saying, my nature's so evil, it's sort of like you go into a dusty room, all the dust is settled, and he starts sweeping. And it just, it stirs it up off the bottom, and you're choking in it. He says, that's what our nature does, even with the Scriptures. It wants to use them to make you worse. By the way, that's why many people, when you begin to witness to them, become worse for a while. Because they're trying so hard to fix themselves. A lot of times they plunge off headlong into depths of iniquity they didn't think were possible because God's going to let them go until they want to know how to be born again. In the same verses, Paul talks about the Scriptures twisting, uh, getting twisted by the flesh in order to deceive you. You actually have a resident nature that will take the Word of God and turn it around and misuse it to justify your own evil behavior. It's not just Satan that does that. It's your own flesh that does that. It's an astounding thing. Verse 21, he says, When I would do good, evil is present with me. In other words, my sin nature follows me even to the very doors of sacrifice. He says, I find a law, a general principle, when I'm going to do something right, flesh almost immediately jumps up. Almost every time. Verse 23, it continually seeks to bring you back into the slavery of sin. So on one side, it's important to understand this. And I hope we can hear this. Your old nature, which even as a Christian, if you're sitting here, you absolutely possess. Your old nature is only evil continually. It cannot be sanctified. It cannot be diminished. It cannot be eradicated on this earth, and it must be dealt with like the Bible says. All right, then on the other side, you have verse 24, speaks of the new man. The new man. Notice how he describes that. Put on the new man, which after God is created. In other words, this isn't your doing. The new nature you possess was given to you when you trusted Christ. You didn't affect the change, but God implanted the very nature of Himself within you. It doesn't mean you became God, but it means you became spiritually alive. Now all of a sudden you had a new nature. And look how it's described. It's described as being created in righteousness, that's moral equity, and holiness, that's distinctness and purity. So, God implants this new nature which cares about moral equity and wants to be pure and clean in the sight of God. That's why when you came to Christ, there was a change. And that is why right now, this very moment, the battle rages inside you on a daily basis. You see, when somebody doesn't know Christ, all they have is the old nature. They're its puppet. 
And you come to Jesus, it's not come to Jesus, lay down the armor and everything's fine, smooth sailing. It's come to Jesus, he's worthy to follow, but I'm telling you something, you are signing up for war, and it's not just war out there, it's war in here. It's internal as well as external, maybe more so. Now this new nature, okay, old nature, only evil continually, period. New nature. The life of God in you only desires good. That's why Paul says in Romans 7, the good that I want to do, I don't do. And the evil that I hate, I do it anyway. We've all been there, haven't you? I know what's right. I want to do what's right. Did you do it? No. Why? I don't know. You know, Paul had the same problem. That's what drove him to such despair at the end of Romans 7. He's just like us. He wasn't a superhero. He says in verse 18, For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. In other words, I find my new nature wants to do right, but my main ongoing problem is to find how, how to do right. Most of us know what it's like to even hear preaching. And you say amen to that, and I want to do that. You walk out the door, and you fail. And you fail consistently. And inwardly, you're thinking, why can't I do that? I know what's right. I see it in the Scriptures. I'm supposed to have a new nature. Why can't I perform that which is good? So again, Romans 6 through 8 is dealing with that major subject. All right, now with respect to this internal war and the external things that come, what is our responsibility? I'm going to break it down just into three statements here. And you'll see them. Verse 22, 23, 24. Here's what they are. Put off, be renewed, and put on. Put off, be renewed, put on. And we're going, to, we're going to say something about each of those. Now first, let me jump into the middle of that statement and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Verse 23. It has to be emphasized, this is not a one-time act. Now, he, he's speaking to Christian people, by the way. He's not telling the lost be renewed. He's telling people who had come to Christ, who had a position seated in the heavenlies, who were forgiven who were accepted in the beloved, and he's telling them, you need to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Not a one-time thing, but an ongoing... In fact, the word renewed means renovation. Uh, you and I need continual remodeling of our thought processes. This isn't some one-time bold commitment of dedication. Those times are okay. But just understand, some serious dedication or coming forward or having some wonderful experience with God in the forest doesn't mean the battle's over. I really think that mentality has harmed far more people than it's helped. It's not something that happens overnight. You and I are all an ongoing construction project. Now, basically speaking, how primarily is the mind renewed? Well, obviously, coming to Christ and salvation, that's a large part of it. Uh, we have no ability to be renewed before that, but what about after salvation? Well, here's the nuts and bolts. It's a submissive will. Basically, a disposition that says, Lord, what is your will not so that I'll decide if I'm going to do it. That's not submission. Lord, what is your will? Because I'm going to do it. By the way, that simple declaration in the soul makes all the difference in the world in understanding the Scriptures. You come to this living book with a mindset, what's the will of God so I can chew on it? You can forget being directed. The fundamental thing in knowing the will of God is subjection to Him. God is not our genie in a bottle. He won't play second fiddle to some other idol in our life. There has to be a submission. But that has to be coupled with the continual diet of the Word of God and prayer. Why? Because we don't just need remodeling to recognize what's happening out there. We need remodeling to recognize what's happening in here. 
We think something like the flesh has deceitful lusts. Not just evil tendencies, but evil the tendencies that very convincingly lie to you about them. Oh, we need divine revelation. By the way, let me say this. Don't be discouraged. Now, on one side, I think we should do all we can to remember the Scriptures. I get thrilled from up here when I see people taking notes because, you know, like Criswell said, a short pencil is better than a long memory. But even, even with that, let's say if I were to ask you, what percentage of your daily Bible reading and of the sermons that you've heard in your life, what percentage do you have available for your instantaneous recall? What would we all say? A pretty small amount. So sometimes you look at that and we go, what, what, what's, a, what's a waste? It's not a waste if we think about it correctly. You have to remember God ordained the constant reading of His Word. God ordained continual preaching knowing that we by nature are forgetful creatures. I like to think of it this way. Let's say here's a guy and he lives next to this very dusty road and the dust is continually kicked up and settling. And on his porch, he has a basket. And every morning he goes and he picks up that basket and he walks down to the river and he dips it in the river and then he picks it up and he walks back to his house. Now on the way back to his house, almost all the water runs out of that bucket or basket, I mean. But whatever little he has left, he pours into a basin for his own use. And every day he does the same thing. And finally, a curious neighbor just can't stand it. He comes over and he says, man, why are you doing that? What is the point? All you're doing is losing that water. He says, no, friend, you're not looking at this correctly. You see, I dip that basket in the river knowing I'm only going to retain so much. But in the process of that water running through the basket, what's happening every day to that basket? It's being cleansed. The filth and the grime is washing out. And uh, why does David say, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. A lot of what we think we forgot is cleaning and scrubbing. Trust me, I get frustrated there's times I can go back a year back and listen to something I preached and think, wow, I've never heard that before, and I'm the one that said it. It's frustrating. It is. Trust me, this whole thing of preaching is a wonder to me too that God uses it. So we need the constant renewing. In other words, there has to be an ongoing process of renewal, of renovation. Old walls knocked down, new walls built up uh, in the mind so that we can even recognize the difference between the voice of the old man and the voice of the new man. In other words, we can have all the willingness to obey that we want, but if we don't have the discernment through the Scriptures to recognize the difference between the two, we're doomed to continual failure. Okay, so there has to be an ongoing renewing. All right, but what else is our responsibility? Okay, see those words? Very simple imagery. Put off and put on. But he says, well, it can't be that easy. Well, yes and no. We just have to look at it correctly. The very plain imagery of put off and put on is like uh, there you are standing before your coat closet. Now, let's just make some basic observations. Notice it doesn't say create your coat. It's already been given. All you need to walk in godliness from God's side is given. And it's hanging there. Uh, notice also by default, you and I are already wearing the wrong coat. It's not that you walk up to your coat closet and there's two things hanging there and you say, hmm. It's that you walk up to your coat closet and inside that cloak closet is hanging the shining white garments and by default, every single day is the filthy ones on you. So he's saying you got to put off and you have to put on. Another basic observation, this is not going to happen by itself. I mean, merely having a coat in the closet doesn't mean you'll be properly attired. I think here's somebody outside, it's 20 below zero, and they're just shivering like crazy. 
You go up to him, you say, friend, uh, you want to borrow my coat? He says, oh, no, I got one. Where is it? Oh, it's in the closet, right? You want to see it? Well, it doesn't do you a lot of good if you don't put it on. Here's another important observation. It is a conscious choice regardless of how you feel. In other words, feelings are irrelevant to what you do. When you go put your coat on in the morning, does it really matter how you feel? What matters is, did you put it on or not? Today, I felt like putting my coat on. Tomorrow, I might feel like it. Yesterday, I didn't feel like it. And what did you do with it? Now, I think a good thing to insert here, something that we all naturally wonder, and I hope this is review for some of you because that means this is sticking in our minds. Someone may jump up and say, yeah, okay, how is this done? Turn with me to Romans 6. Let's just review a little bit. Okay, again, you see, put off the old man, put on the new man. Our mind ought to be making a beeline for a passage like this. Hey, this is what's under discussion. Okay, there's three key verbs that appear here. And again, this illustrates why we have to know the Scriptures to fight this battle. I mean, we, we, have, a, we have a temptation come, right? What, what is the natural battle line? What, I mean, what kind of questions pop into our mind as a defense? Do I think I can fight this? Do I feel like I can fight this? Did I defeat this yesterday? Do other people I know do the same thing? Those are all the wrong question. So what Paul does in chapter 6, before he goes into what the flesh is actually like in chapter 7, he's giving a sort of a blueprint to theologically overcome the strivings of the flesh by the Scriptures. All right, what are, what are the key words? The first one is no. It's chapter 3, chapter 6, chapter 9. Or, I'm sorry, verse 3, verse 6, verse 9. Know ye not, knowing this, knowing that. And what he begins by talking about is, listen, when Christ went to that cross 2,000 years ago, your old nature was nailed there to the cross with Him and put to death. Now, it's important theologically, not eradicated. You and I both know you have a flesh and so do I. But here's why that's important. Because the flesh and all of its deceitful lust is going to tell you, you have to obey me. You feel like obeying me. You've obeyed me in the past. You were my slave for years. And it wants to rattle that chain. And so theologically, Paul is saying, listen, whether you feel like it or not, whether you're aware of it or not, when you came to Jesus, the power, the dominion of your old nature was nailed to that cross and its power over you was slaughtered. Okay, so first there has to be knowing, there has to be an understanding of what happened when I came to Christ. Secondly, you see the word reckon. Verse 11, likewise, in the same way, just like Christ died and doesn't need to die again, likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. In other words, when temptation comes, we have a choice to make. I'm either going to believe what God has said in His infallible Word, or I'm going to consult feelings and experiences and everything else to try to figure out if what God said is really true. So, here comes a struggle. I remember theologically, well, I'm crucified with Christ. My, my nature no longer has dominion over me. But man, it feels like it does. I have a choice to make. Am I going to believe this? Or am I going to believe him? Reckon. Okay, there's the understanding. Then there's the choice to actually believe what God has said by faith. And then the third, in fact, look at verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. In other words, it used to dominate you and it doesn't have to. I mean, think about this. Why does sin have power over a Christian sometimes? Two reasons. One is you love it. And two is you believe it has authority and you give it to it. It really boils down to that. What am I going to do next? Look at verse 13. Neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. 
So we don't, we don't, again, we don't fight sin by putting our dukes up, gritting our teeth and saying, not going to do it, not going to do it, not going to do it. We fight sin not by passively running necessarily. We fight sin by actively yielding to the right source. Don't yield to unrighteousness. Yield unto God. So in other words, <clears throat> um, every choice or temptation to sin is really two thrones laid before you. And a choice, am I going to know what God said? Am I going to believe what God said? Am I going to yield to the right throne, the throne of God? Or not? And let me point this out. I think this is so huge in this connection. Back in Ephesians 4, you can go back there if you want. We'll be back there in a second. Ephesians 4. I think it's so utterly critical in this discussion to understand this is not a one-time act. And I don't mean, it's not even a one-time act daily. I think sometimes, okay, I use the imagery of the coat closet. It has some limitations. In other words, putting off the old man, putting on the new man, it's not something that you meet with God in the morning for your devotions, and now I've put on my new man, and now I should be good. Wrong picture. What happens? You get a little bit in your day, failure happens. And sometimes in your mind you're thinking, well, bummer. I guess i got to put stuff back on tomorrow morning and hope for better next time. Wrong picture. And what you see in this passage walking through is putting off the old man, putting on the new man is something that takes place continually throughout every single day. Every decision... Every circumstance, every temptation, every time you sense the flesh rising up, every conversation, every time your thoughts begin to drift into dangerous territory, every single time you have a choice to make and you have one of two thrones to bow before. It's not a matter of if you'll yield. You will yield to one of those two. It's really not the right, did you yield to sin? No, no, no. Or did you yield? Oh, yeah, I yielded. Or did you yield to God or did you yield to sin? Which was it? Because you will do one or the other. So, by the way, this is what it means. When you read something like walk in the Spirit, what's that talking about? Same thing. It's building the consistent daily habit of fighting sin scripturally. I'm dead to sin. I'm going to reckon it to be true. I'm going to kneel before the right throne over and over and over and over and over again. And it's like walking. And it becomes more natural. What does it mean to abide in Christ? Same idea. It's fellowship with God that leads to an ongoing habit of saying yes to Him, yes to Him, yes to Him. And confessing sin when I'm aware of it and get up and keep going. I mean, don't we do that sometimes? You fail in the middle of the day. And we want to just shut down. Well, tomorrow, can't wait for bedtime. What about the rest of the day? Well, I just fail. Okay, but what, is, what does 1 John 1, nine say? Are you going to confess your sin and believe God or are you going to keep wallowing around in pity? Get up. See, not only does the flesh deceive you in descending, once you do sin, it keeps you from repenting. Isn't that something? You talk about deceitful lust. Now, let me say this. Very closely tied with this discussion is replacement theology. Now, I say that tongue-in-cheek. Those of you that have been here in Sunday school know that I cannot stand that concept. A typically replacement theology means Israel's been replaced by the church. That's not what I'm talking about. We reject that. But there is an idea in which replacement is continually a biblical concept. Let me explain what I mean. The Bible does not merely teach stop doing bad things. It does teach that. But the Bible teaches stop doing the wrong things and replace them with the right things. Uh, trust me, this is no minor difference. Many of our failures come because we either don't realize or don't remember that principle. When I was really into sports when I was young, as some of them, they would say, the best offense is a good defense. 
In a sense, you can turn that around in our Christian life. One of the best defenses against sin is a very crystal clear offense of knowing where you're going instead. In other words, it's not just a question of what you're not doing. What are you going to do instead? You know, it's like you're driving a truck down a hill and the brakes go out. No matter how much you push them, they don't work. You really have a couple choices besides closing your eyes and hoping for the best. But let's say you come. Here comes an object in your pathway. A dog runs out in front of you or something. I mean, you could keep mashing on the brakes. Stop, 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 stop. Whack, burp, and rover's flying because you're not stopping. Or instead of focusing on that, you can focus on this. Instead of hitting that, I'm going there. Now your driving's not defensive. Now it's offensive. Now I'm not focused on what I'm not hitting. Now I'm focused on what I am going to do and where I am going to go. Now think with me for a minute. Romans 6. Sin isn't defeated by focusing on not sinning. You will never overcome sin by deliberately thinking, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin, because what you're focusing on is sin. You will overcome sin when you focus on what God has said about your sin nature, deliberately choosing to believe Him, and deliberately kneeling before God and saying, Lord, I will obey you. I will. You actively choose to kneel before the right throne. That principle is replayed over and over and over in this section, clear up to 521, which we'll see as we walk through it. I mean, think of some examples. Think of our thought life. Is it supposed to be offensive or defensive? Take a passage like Philippians 4.8. It doesn't say, stop thinking bad things. Okay, we should. Here's what it does say. It gives a long list of things and it says, think on these things. Speaking of a truck driving down a road, how does it work when you try to stop your mind from thinking? You can't stop thinking which means you'll never fix wrong thought patterns by trying to stop thinking wrong thought patterns. You will overcome wrong thought patterns when you reject them as wicked. You kneel before the throne of God and you think about the things He tells you to think about. I mean, how about worry? In fact, just before that passage, the early part of Philippians 4. What what does the Scripture say about worry? Uh, Do we all agree worry is bad? Uh, But telling you worry is bad makes you stop, right? How many of you like worrying? No, you hate it. It's miserable. Why do you do it? Flesh. Uh, Philippians 4 doesn't say just be careful for nothing. That means don't worry about anything. If that was all God said, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, I'm not helped. Thank God He doesn't. He says be careful for nothing, but... In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Turn away from the anxiety. I'm going that way. Prayer, supplication, thanksgiving. What happens? The peace of God which passes understanding keeps your heart and mind. In fact, I was thinking when Maddie was down here quoting Psalm 1. Does that have anything to do with this? Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But he replaces evil counsel, his delights in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate day and night. Ah, and see, he replaces this with that. And what happens? He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Not because he just stopped the wrong. Because he turned this way. He actively replaced it. It's true with our habits. Let's say you become aware of something in your life that needs to change. Let's say there's a two-hour time block, and you realize that's a waste of time before the Lord. Just as important as the question of, are you going to stop doing that? You know what's just as important? 
So you have a friend to you and says, well, I need to get this out of my life. You know what a good question to ask is? What are you going to put there? Because I guarantee if you don't fill that vacuum with something godly, you will go back to it. I find it's easy as a parent to make this mistake with children, especially as they get older. My, my, my children will tell you I failed at this before. There's some activity. I don't mean something overtly evil, but something that's fine, but just not the best. And you look at that and you think, well, I don't think that's the best use of time. Well, let me give you an encouragement. Before you step in and say, you need to stop, be willing to work with them to find a suitable replacement for that time block with something better. Don't just say, don't do that. Now sit on the couch and fold your arms and look holy. We don't, we don't function that way. Turn the steering wheel because the truck is going to keep on driving. All right, with our remaining time, and we'll walk through these quickly. There's four areas of everyday life in these verses that we read where we must actively choose the right and not just avoid the wrong. And conveniently, they all start, they can all start with a T. And I'll just, I'll read them to you quickly. Truth, temper, thievery, and talking. And every one of those are everyday examples of opportunities to put off the old man and to put on the new man. In fact, verse 25 starts that way. Look at it. Wherefore, putting away lying. Okay, he says, put off the old man. And then he says, let me be more specific. Let me tell you one piece of that old man. Put away lying. Now, I will remind you again, this letter was not written to scream on the streets of Ephesus. This letter is written to Christian people in a church that was planted by an apostle. Uh, maybe on the surface, I would think you don't need to say something like, hey, stop lying. Do we have a nature that's evil? Uh, yeah. And God tells us that. I mean, that's why commands like this are here. Look at, okay, put away lying. You mean Christian people can lie? The sad answer to that is yes. Remember what he said about the old man and his deceitful lusts? What makes people lie? They think they'll gain some benefit. It's really as simple as that. They think it's more beneficial to lie than it is to tell the truth. Now, by the way, somebody in their old conversation, their old lifestyle, who is a pathological liar, is probably going to find a serious war turning these habits around. And listen, don't make excuses for the flesh. Call it what it is. Now, think about this. How many ways is it possible to lie? It's not just your bold-faced, brazen sort. Like if I told you I was 10 foot tall in Chinese this morning. Well, that would be a lie. But I would submit most of the times Christians' deception is a little more refined than that. How can we lie? How about exaggeration? I grew up a fisherman, and it's societally acceptable. Well, how, how big was that fish? And pretty soon you needed a semi to carry the thing home. Man says, I was just exaggerating. God says, you're a liar. I'm telling you, when I came to, this is something the Lord has had to really deal with me on. And it's easy still to catch myself inflating something just unwittingly. I don't try to do it, but it's frustrating. It's part of the deceitful flesh. Uh, it could be pretense. I mean, pretending to be something we're not. Um, how about manipulation? Spending truth to make ourselves come out squeaky clean. I mean, how about you're going to tell somebody, you want counsel, right? And you're going to go talk to somebody. Multitude is counselors, their safety. What is very easy to do? You tell them the story, and you know you're leaving out crucial data, and you're spinning it in such a way as to get them to give you the counsel you think you want so you can feel spiritual. Oh, we don't do that, do we? It's very easy to do that. It's easy to allow falsities to persist when we have opportunity to correct them. How about failure to keep promises? How about a brother or sister comes to you and says, Hey, are you offended at something I've done? Oh, no. You go home and burn with bitterness. 
That's a lie. And by the way, the solution isn't duct tape on your mouth. Don't lie, don't lie, don't lie, don't lie, don't lie. He says, turning, turn that steering wheel, replace lies with truth. I never forgot what D.L. Moody said. I read it young in my Christian life, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but he was talking about his own tendency to exaggerate. And he said he finally figured out, when he catches himself doing that, he'll go to the person and say, will you please forgive me? I flat out lied to you. And he said, the flesh wants to call it something else. I stretched that a bit. I exaggerated. And he says, when I started calling it a lie, it shocked me into repentance and I quit doing it. <laughs> All right, truth means calling sin what it is and speaking as though God himself is in the room because he is. Now, that should be true with all men, but especially is it unfitting for Christians to lie to each other. I mean, look, he says, put away lying, and he says, speak every man truth with his neighbor. And in this context, he's talking about other Christians. And look at the reason he gives. We are members one of another. You know, it's like you have a nerve in a body, and it's sending totally false signals to the brain. I mean, we have names for conditions like that. None of them are healthy. Or you have an eye that's sending fake messages to the rest of the body and seeing things that aren't there. We call that hallucination. We don't want that either. And he's saying it's the same in the Christian body when you have members not being truthful with each other. The body becomes dysfunctional. Okay, so we replace lying in all of its forms with unflinching truth. Uh, next, verse 26. How about dealing with temper? Now, I want to point out, notice it doesn't say, don't ever be angry. There is such a thing as righteous indignation. You think when the Lord Jesus cleansed the temple and He makes that whip and He's in there throwing their tables over? You think it was just nonchalant with a passive smile? Huh. Uh, no. In fact, in Mark 3, He's in the synagogue and it says He looked round about on them with anger. Specifically says that. Now, when God's character is maligned, false gospels are destroying lives. If somebody tries to physically harm your child, I was watching a documentary this week. My, my wife will tell you this stuff, some of this stuff makes me really, really mad. It's about this health, wealth, prosperity gospel. And I hear the back of the auditorium mothers with dying children, oxygen. Hooked up, dying. And they pooled their money together and they came to that healing crusade and they give the rest of the money they have. And this guy up here takes that money and he goes and flies a $100 million jet and he stays in hotels that cost $20,000 a night. And they go home, and their child dies, and they declare Christianity is a farce, and I want no part of it. That ought to make us mad. It's horrible. There is such a thing as righteous indignation, and in those rare cases, emphasize rare, it says, be ye angry. In fact, listen to Proverbs 25, 23. The north wind driveth away rain, so doth an angry countenance a backbiting tongue. Did you catch that? Sometimes a gossip needs somebody to get righteously indignant enough to say, listen, you are destroying lives. And it needs to stop. There's a place for that. But see, the problem is the vast majority of our anger isn't righteous, is it? That's why you see the other side of the statement, and sin not. Uh, think of Moses' life. He comes down from the mount, he sees the golden calf incident, and he shatters the tablets. Not much problem with that. Fast forward, years. Must I fetch water out of this rocky rebels? Whack! Whack! The Lord says, you failed to sanctify me. 
you're not going in the promised land. Even Moses found out righteous indignation sometimes isn't so righteous. Anger is like fire. It has a rightful, very contained place, but easily and quickly becomes destructive when it jumps the barriers. You know, it was actually Aristotle, of all people, who made this statement. I did a double take when I saw it. But he's actually right in this. Listen to what Aristotle said. Anybody can become angry. That's easy. But to be angry with the right person, to the right degree, at the right time, for the right purpose, and in the right way, that is not easy. That's scriptural. I mean, you think of us parents. I mean, how many of you justify getting really mad and disciplining a child? Is that necessary? Usually what that proves is we're more bothered, not by the glory of God, but that we're annoyed. You've inconvenienced me, and now I want to whack you. It's not right. All right. Look at verse 26. Let not the sun go down on your wrath. He's saying when you display unrighteous anger, become aware of it, you need to deal with it quickly because it's going to spread like a fire. Confess it to God, those who have been offended, especially those in your own home. Jokingly, I looked at this uh, being from Alaska and thought, boy, you better deal with anger quickly up there because in the winter the sun sets at 4 p.m. You don't have a lot of time. but, But the idea is... Don't retire to bed at night still seething with anger and out of fellowship with God. That's actually, that's a dangerous thing to do. Look at the next statement. Why? Because it gives place to the devil. Uh, That word place, it actually means a base of operations, a beachhead in military terminology. It means a fortified location from which, which to launch an attack. I mean, do we hear this? Sinful anger left uncontested and unconfessed gives Lucifer a fortified position inside your life. Let's say you have a family, husband and wife at odds, go to bed mad, won't deal with it. You know what it's like? It's like you go to your spare bedroom if you have one. And you make up the bed and you pull back the covers and say, all right now, Apollyon, you you climb on in here, make yourself comfortable. A breakfast will be at 7 o'clock. You make sure to come. You'll be welcome. Neither give place to the devil. Verse 28, how about thievery? And once again, there is stop stealing. I mean, you mean Christians can do that? Apparently so. Again, it's usually going to be in refined ways. I mean, what ways besides the ski mask in the local bank is there to be a a thief? How about slacking off when you're on the time clock? How about fudging income tax returns? You know, I say this to my shame, but in my ignorance early in my Christian life, in fact, the first home we bought, uh, we go in there to buy it, and uh, the mortgage broker, he he was actually really good at getting this sort of thing done. I didn't know how it all worked. I was kind of horrified later on, but I jumped around income-wise, done different jobs at the time, was sort of unstable work-wise. And he said, oh, no problem. We have, we have a program called a stated income loan. And so you just pay a little extra percentage point and the bank just sort of overlooks that. And what he meant was, on a stated income loan, the bank doesn't ask because the mortgage broker takes the paperwork, sees what the payment is, and writes out what writes in whatever income you need to make to qualify for that loan. And he told me later on, he said, yeah, that's why they call them a liar's loan. Oh. I mean, is it possible to rob God? I mean, you've been here long enough. You know I don't bash people over the head. If you don't put X amount in the offering plate, God's going to curse you. The New Testament doesn't do that. But I do want to say this. I remember the banker in our town in Alaska, the president of the local bank or the the manager, he took funds from that bank for his own personal business ventures. Of course, he's going to pay it back, right? He went to jail, misappropriation of funds. All of us are stewards of everything we have belongs to God. Are we misappropriating God's funds, being a good steward of His resources? 
How about stealing the praise that belongs to someone else or taking the glory that belongs to God? I mean, we can take compliments and we can stick them on our own head and turn them around, look in the mirror and see how they shine. Or we can do what they do in, in Revelation 4 and cast that at the feet of the Lord. Lord, the only reason I'm anything is because of you. Thank you for the grace of my life, but I know full well if that's true of me, you are to be praised. But he doesn't just say stop stealing. But he says work and give. There's surefire ways to stop thieving habits. Again, turn the steering wheel away. Replace them with something proactive and God-honoring. Now, do you notice God's prescriptions are often the very opposite of what you feel like doing? <laughs> the antidote for selfishness and stealing is what? Hard work and generosity. The antidote for worry. I mean, when you're in a ball of worry, what, what's the last thing you want to do? You probably don't want to pray and give thanks. You want to be consumed figuring out the problem yourself. Trust me, I can be the poster child at that one. But God says, stop mulling it over and trying to fix the problem and get on your knees and deal with it like I say, or I'm not going to give you the peace because I'm not creating plan B for you. Do you believe my word or not? You must choose to put on the new man. All right, one more. We're done. Verse 29. Thank you for your patience this morning. I was hoping to get through the section. I think we will. How about the way we talk? Verse 29. Right, studies have claimed that men speak about 7,000 words per day and women speak about 20,000. Now, don't worry. I'm not making a conclusion that some of you think I'm making from that. Women are by nature more communicative. And I'm telling you, the Christian world needs that. Some of you men that want to go into your hermit shell, uh, we, we could use some communication. But the point is, whether it's 7,000 or 20,000, we all have ample opportunity to sin a whole lot with this thing. That's why James 3 addresses the tongue as an unruly evil full of deadly poison. That's why Solomon said, "...in a multitude of words there wanteth not sin, but he that refraineth his lips is wise." So look at the command, let no, uh, he used the word corrupt, that's rotting, destructive. Let zero rotting, destructive communication come out of your mouth. Boy, does that cover a wide range of speech. I mean, fill in the blank. Stop the rotting words. Okay, once again, the solution is not don't talk, don't talk, don't talk. Some of you have tried that. Haven't you? You, you, get, you get convicted. I said too much. And you're determined. That's it. I'm not talking. I'm going into don't talk, don't talk, don't. How'd that go? Why? Because the focus is on don't, 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 instead of this. Let no rotting, corrupting, destructive communication come out of your mouth. But what are you going to proactively replace that with? That which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace to the hearers. You don't just stop talking. Okay, you, you turn away from the wrong speech that tears down, and you speak things which build lives and benefit people in their walk with God. Here's another way to look at it. Rather than selfishly asking yourself what you always want to talk about, Replace that with what is best for other people. I mean, here's just helpful questions. Is this true? Is this necessary? Is this appropriate? Is this the right time? Am I the right person to deliver this message? Uh, will I be ashamed of this conversation at the judgment seat of Christ? Other questions could go along with that. Okay, so you put off... The corrupt communication. Don't go look for a roll of duct tape. Put on the new man, which is going to build and minister grace. Now, sometimes building and minister grace, ministering grace means saying hard things. It doesn't mean don't ever be negative. But make sure this is for the glory of God. Aren't you glad 
that we have a God who delights in replacement properly understood. He replaced your deadness for His life. He replaced your powerlessness with His ability. He replaced your complete slavery to evil with deliverance. He replaced your old lifestyle for newness of life that actually is capable of bringing glory to God. He replaced your collision course with hell for your title deed to a mansion in the skies in the presence of your Father in heaven. He replaced your filthy rags of self-effort with His perfect righteousness. He replaced your attempts to save Himself with His blood which paid it all. And you know what He wants to do as we walk in the Spirit? Walk according to the replacements He's laid out for us. With respect to sin, is your foot on the brake pedal more than your hands are on the steering wheel? It's going to fail. Oh, there's plenty we need to not do. But the Bible says don't do and do. Living out Christ is not marked by all the things that don't do. There's plenty. Living out Christ is marked by, you think of the fruit of the Spirit? It's all positive, forward motion to walk with God. Let's pray. Father, please help us to understand and internalize this. I wish it could have been said better. I really do. But Lord, I hope that you take this and put another block on your building. And I pray you'd give me the grace to understand this also in my own daily walk. Lord, you know the failure in my own thought patterns. I stand here and teach this. It doesn't mean I'm impervious to the failure five minutes from now. Help us, Lord God, to conquer sin scripturally. Help us to not only be worried about what we're not doing, but to even be more concerned with what we are going to do instead. Thank you for redeeming us from this corrupt world. Thank you for giving us a new man. In Jesus' name, amen.